Welcome to the OB Build podcast, Building to Boss. I'm Caitlin Henry, an investor here at OpenView. This month, we're releasing a special mini-series with female leaders across the enterprise SaaS industry who all know that the path to leadership is challenging, but aren't willing to let that stop them from building something great. Today, we'll hear from Andrea Swanee, the head of go-to-market at Cyrol, a data cloud security company. Andrea's perspective has been shaped by years of experience across a variety of roles, from business development, strategic partnership, sales, product marketing, and everything in between. She's worked at companies from their earliest stages of development to the much later stages of hyper growth and scale. No matter where you are in your go-to-market journey, I can promise that Andrea has practical, insightful lessons for you that we're super excited to share. In today's episode, we'll unpack the ways B2B SaaS companies can use marketing messaging to differentiate themselves, the nuances of selling into a security audience or a more technical audience, and why it's important to balance builders and managers while hiring and setting up processes at early stage companies. All of that and more in this episode of the Build Mini Series, Building to Boss. Let's dive in with Andrea Swanee. Welcome back to Build. I'm joined here by the wonderful Andrea Swanee, head of go-to-market at Cyril. Andrea, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here, Caitlin. So you've had an interesting mix of experiences as a go-to-market leader. Biz dev, strategic partnerships, sales, you name it. For those listeners who are meeting you for the first time, tell us a little bit more about your background and what sorts of problems you've been most excited about solving throughout your career. Yeah, definitely. Uh, So as a lot of people end up in this space, I kind of fell into it. I spent a few years in my first job consulting, just learning about general business operations, working with sales and marketing teams across steel industry and tourism industry. It was kind of wild first two years. And then 2008 happened. We were in a recession and I said, let's let's try this startup thing on for size. So I moved back to the Bay Area after graduating from Stanford and just reconnected with some folks there. So I ended up with a really technical product in desktop virtualization. And it was a security play to help onboard contractors. So instead of sending contractors laptops, you just sent them this local virtual machine and they had access to everything. So from there, I think the first bit of advice that was really helpful was talk to the engineers, learn what they do. Even though I had a poli-sci and econ background, (laughs) it it actually started to make sense in terms of what they were working on, at least at a high level. And so at that company, I spent five years there, which is eons in startup land. So I I worked on everything from account management. I started taking over sales and and started closing deals. And then I moved full-time to New York City to manage and direct our East Coast business there. So I worked with BP and McKinsey and all kinds of fun enterprise accounts out there, uh, AXA insurance as well. So I got a feel for the enterprise thing. And then I wanted to know what was beyond sales, you know, I was <laughs> what would get us leverage. And I think that's where business development was piquing my interest, where we work with partners to really open up the floodgates in terms of getting access to more deals. So I found that whole deal structure interesting. I just wanted to gain experience there. And then that kind of rounded out my five-year experience. And then I had a friend from Stanford say, hey, we've got an early stage security company. We've got interest from enterprises. 
help us do enterprise sales. Like help us. <laughs> they they were the founding team at Signal Sciences. They came from Etsy, which you know is a is a yarn website, as they would say, I and mean, a knitting website, but actually was very tech forward. And so they they had spun out to create a security product. And so I just jumped on board. It was the ability to work with someone I already respected and on a problem that was seemingly big <laughs> from where I stood at least. And so from there really built out the go-to-market. So everything from pricing and contracts and prospecting and building a, a sales team, building a sales engineering team, building a, a customer success organization. So something that really drew me to it was just a, a strong vision and fitting into a clear market gap. And that's kind of what has led me you know, to where I am as well now at Cyril. So. So your two most recent roles have been in the larger security world. What do you see as some of the nuances of being a go-to-market leader in security specifically, as opposed to, say, some of the other experiences you may have had in vertical software or just generally B2B SaaS? What challenges do you face that are unique to the security world? Yeah, it's a great question. I think in general, it just feels good, first of all, to be working on making users and companies more secure. It's kind of it's something I get excited every day <laughs> to get out of bed and do. And, and I think it was, you know, forming relationships early on, starting, you know, 10 years plus ago with folks and understanding challenges and what they were trying to do. So I think security has just a great network, a great community. And so it's it's been a, a joy to be a part of, really. I think the specific things that are challenging are just the general crappiness of marketing messaging. If you, if you had to have to call something, it's really hard to stand out in the crowd. Everyone's saying the same words, the same buzzwords. And it's, it's really challenging to, how do you, how do you separate yourself? And so one of our mentors at Cyril told us, you know, the key to success at a startup is talk clearly, proclaim leadership and grow fast. So how do we talk clearly is something, you know, I always try to focus on how do you distill things down to, sound bites that you remember, that customers and prospects remember, that you can kind of put clearly on your website. So I think that's that's a clear challenge in security is just that, you know, walk the virtual halls at RSA and, and see 700 new companies that are talking about cloud security and you have no idea what they do. So I think that's the number one tricky thing. The second thing is building a team that sells to security engineers, right? Like security engineers can be a tricky group to sell to. And at Signal Sciences, my first 10 reps were just total A players. Um, a lot of that was luck, but I started to figure out how to, how to find those types of folks. I had required reading around Gene Kim's Phoenix project to get in the head of buyers. My team came up with a good interview strategy to basically quiz someone on their technical acumen so they could, we know they could carry a conversation with a security engineer. So I think that was at the beginning stages really crucial. You find a lot of people that are super eager, but the ones that really actually want to understand the product is really important early on. I think over time, I'm learning myself. I don't need to be as, as into the product as I am, but it is a passion of mine. I really like strong products. So I think that's another challenge. And I think the other thing is really defining, you face a challenge in identifying with the old way of doing things in your given market. And there can be really negative connotations. So take an example at, you know, signal sciences, it took us a couple years 
actually succumb to the fact that we were playing in the WAF market. You know, we had just kind of identified ourselves as like the anti-WAF, but solving a lot of the same challenges. At Cyril, it's challenging even more so because there isn't a comparison. It's not like we're doing, it's not a DevOps WAF or something like that, right? We're, we're kind of combining IAM or, you know, identity and access management with data activity monitoring with data loss prevention. And so it's really like you have to figure out which audience you're talking to and who needs to hear which words. And, and so starting to chart out, you know, matrices of what messages to what people I think is really important, but also challenging. So those are kind of the top three that come to mind. Definitely. I think that's one of the most exciting and perhaps the most challenging parts, even from an investor standpoint about the larger security space. Like you said, you know, precision in, in messaging and product is really everything. And it's great to hear that that's something that you found true throughout different areas of your career as well. Mm-hmm. So I know you were at Signal Sciences through a period of really intense growth, a period that a lot of build listeners might be going through right now. As a go-to-market leader, you've got to be getting pulled in a million different directions in these times of hybrid growth, I've, I've got to believe. How do you hone in on what the most strategic things were for the company to focus on? And how did you decide what initiatives to leave behind? Yeah, it's a great question. And it, it depends on the stage that you're at. I'm always thinking a few steps ahead. It's kind of a trait of a, an Enneagram 3, which I don't know if listeners know that, but it's great <laughs> beyond, beyond Myers-Briggs. But it basically means I have to be cautious of solving problems that don't exist yet. Right. I think like I'm a problem solver at heart. And so there's a lot of times where I have to pull back from, well, what happens when we're at this scale and we need to do this, this and this. And, you know, you have to collaborate with the team and realize, you know, what's the pressing problem versus what could be a problem later. And I think not over engineer, over think processes sometimes. I think in general, it's crucial to be customer focused and understand as much as we can about the customers and in every stage of growth. So we continue finding patterns, right? We want to make it as easy as possible to repeat the process. So at every stage, I think it's always important to be sales focused and unblock sales. And that you know takes the form in early days of obviously founders being on calls in later stages of having, you know, sales and customer success and product meetings to talk about sales blockers. And it's really, you know, taking a measurement-based approach or metrics to make your decisions in terms of, you know, what we're working on in terms of, you know, product features and capabilities to unlock new sets of customers. I'm a big fan of putting a lot of things in Salesforce just to, to be able to report on them later and starting that from the beginning. So you can say, yeah, these are all the, the platforms that we want to support in the future. And now that we have this support, we can reach out to, you know, 100 new customers because we've talked to them in the past. And so I think, you know, setting up basic processes like that is, is crucial. And I think hiring is always top of mind, right? I think at the early stages, it's really important to find the builders and the managers. And it's a hard person to find that has, you know, someone that can both get their hands in and build and manage. And so it's worth the wait. (laughs) I think trying to hire for folks that in critical roles to build out teams that haven't done it before, because, you know, they're, they're eager, I think can be challenging. (laughs) I think, you know, ultimately you can, you can hire in managers later as well, but that becomes challenging too. So I think trying to get lock in early uh, folks that have have done it before, so that you can kind of you know give away your Legos, so to speak. That article that came out, I don't know, 
six, eight years ago now. But in terms of management, I think is really critical to make sure you're focusing on the key problems and others are focusing on things that you've solved. That last point is super interesting to me around hiring someone who is able to both get their hands dirty and potentially be a leader. We see this with startups that we're investing in all the time, you know, whether it's in sales, it might be in customer success, even finance. They're looking for someone who will be the first person on their team and therefore needs to be able to be both an individual contributor and a team builder at the same time. Any advice for someone making that key first hire in sales or other go-to-market functions who has to play both of those roles? How to find them, you mean? What's the tips on finding them or bringing them on? Yeah, tips on finding them. And if there's any particular criteria that you've used to assess them or things that you've learned along the way that are like, no, you know, definitely don't sure. go for someone with this experience, but go for someone with this experience. Yeah, it starts with making sure you understand what you want. I think sometimes it's great. We get referrals all day long of great people. And then we talk to them and we are like, oh yeah, I think they can fit into this and do this. But if you don't have an idea, actually, like I said, back to the earlier question, what are you focusing on right now? Not what are the problems down the line, but what do we need to solve Mm -hmm. immediately? And how would you solve this problem? But how have you solved this problem, right? It's never asking hypothetical questions in interviews, like because everyone can paint a, a lovely picture, but it's more about what have you done? How have you been in this situation and making sure they have that experience. And once you have an idea of the the different components that you need to build, making sure that there's relevant experience across those, I think is the best way I'd go about it. And then of course, network and referrals. It's always better to hire people that are like, yeah, I know this person, they've done it before. (laughs) So that's always, of course, the first place to start. One thing that's always stood out to me as an expansion stage investor is that there is absolutely no magic bullet when it comes to building a successful, repeatable, scalable go-to-market strategy. Everyone seems to run into bumps in the road or has something that they read in a business book turn into a total disaster when they try to implement it in real life. What are some of the most interesting or unexpected or challenging lessons that you've learned as a go-to-market leader in your career thus far? Great question. I think you're totally right. I mean, <laughs> books have great ideas and they're, they're great places to start and failing fast is the way to try them out. You know, I think one of the things that was really interesting, I've seen a couple places now is you can actually have two business models in a way. So a lot of companies start developer up and then others are totally top-down enterprise play. And I think that's changing. You know, I think what I've seen in a couple of companies now is that there's a repeatable, forecastable, you know, mid-market play. And then the enterprise is lumpy for the first couple of years, right? And so actually being able to build out those two and not pick one or the other actually was a really good decision in, in a couple of my experiences. On the hiring front, I learned this the hard way by not doing it, but immediately, but hire two people like at one time, because then you have a, a really good baseline to, you know, both just create a, a good rapport and a good team, but also compare. And so it seems like an investment, but it's a worthy one because you're otherwise you just have one variable, which is this person. So is it this person? Is it the market? You know, I think especially in terms of sales, I think hiring two people or two, you know, BDRs or SDRs is is really crucial. And lastly I would say I think the challenging lessons what I would put into that bucket is, you know, hire people that want to learn and and be 
be someone that always is learning yourself and challenge your own way of thinking. I think it's a battle I fight of, hey, well, I have this experience now. And I think though, every time I lay that down, I end up learning more and becoming a smarter team player that can continue to grow. So those are probably the top of mind. Let's just focus a little bit to Cyril, the company that you're at now. For listeners who don't yet know the company, can you tell us a little bit more about what Cyril does? Absolutely. Yeah. So I've spent some time, you know, first company, first startup in endpoint security, and then I went into AppSec. So it really only made sense to go up to data security, (laughs) to jump up (laughs) the ladder there. It was really crazy to learn that there aren't the same levels of monitoring or access control and security around the places where everyone's data is stored, right? In these like modern cloud databases, pipelines, warehouses, like BigQuery and Mongo and Snowflake and Redshift and all these. And as companies have rapidly shifted to cloud, you know, it's, it's kind of like CI, CD and the development innovations really created the need for application performance monitoring and other tools, right? Like we're pushing out code so fast. How do we know how it's doing and how do we fix it? In the same way, like infrastructure as code has pushed out all these great cloud data services, but it's created this gaping hole of like, who has access to my data? What are they doing with it? What microservice is connected to it? Is it pulling more data than it should? And so really Cyril has come in to to solve that challenge in a couple of interesting ways. You know, I think identity has never been a part of of database access. Uh, Turns out they don't support the same protocols that things like Okta and G Suite and Active Directory speak. So you can't have users authenticate. Monitoring hasn't worked. So you can't log a database without killing performance. And so without those, you have no access control where arguably you need it most because that's the end of the attack chain is the, is the database. So Cyril really solved these by actually being a, an inline stateless proxy to, to basically see all traffic from users and applications and into the, any type of data endpoint and you know control, monitor, and protect the data that's stored there. I definitely resonate with a lot of that. I was speaking with a founder in the data quality space the other day who I actually think painted the picture of this moment in time that you're describing quite well. He basically said everyone went straight from building data infrastructure to building ways to consume that data, analytics, machine learning, et cetera, Mm -hmm. just right on top of it without this ops layer in between to do things like monitoring and security and access, all these things that today are just a no-brainer part of the software infrastructure stack that Mm -hmm. hasn't quite translated over into the data world. I guess from your vantage point, how have you been seeing the data infrastructure and data security landscape change in recent years? And and why Mm -hmm. is something like Cyril more important now than ever? Yeah, Caitlin, I think you just hit the nail on the head. So, uh, you know, it was really, to me, I remember data was kind of the last thing to move to cloud. So I just remember it was, you know, some infrastructure to start, some, you know, non-critical, non-business critical or mission critical applications, and then data came along, right? And so I think that's why we hadn't seen this problem until the last five or six years. I think I remember walking in and seeing Snowflake on a show floor, on a conference floor, and having no idea what they did, right? And now they're how many of our billions of dollars in valuation. But I think because now... Every microservice has a, you know, can have a database attached to it. 
I was talking to a friend who works in analytics at a big financial services company. He's like, yeah, every time we just spin up whatever database, we load some data into it and model out what we need to because the business is looking for us to provide analytics and IT and security have no idea. And so, you know, as you said, I think it's just table stakes. It has to be table stakes because it's in terms of application and infrastructure, you know exactly what's going on. And in data, you know, one of our customers in the healthcare space, who's a VP of engineering, basically said any engineering team worth its muster needs to know which apps and uh, users are accessing data. It just, it's just part of the whole picture. And, you know, we've, we face this in the application security space, which is, you know, you talk to customers sometimes and it's, well, I lock down access to my applications. You know, no one, I know exactly, you know, who's accessing my application. And when you realize it's a, it's a user interface, it's a website, you can't lock down access to that. It's being used, it's, it's out there in the open. It's the same for data. So sure, you can lock down access, you know, only these applications and only these, you know, users can access your database, but so you still have no way of knowing if those are a normal user or application or a malicious one. So without monitoring, you really just don't have the intent there. I've seen it change really where we've just gone from everything has a database and there's really no understanding of where it is. And, you know, that's, that's why I think there's a big push now to understand and put the monitoring in place there. And it's just been a challenging problem. Like I said before, just logging database activity has always uh, hampered performance. So you can't really use it. So you just get some basic error logs. And so, you know, that's why thankfully there's a lot of smart people working on this problem to figure out ways to actually get the real-time data. One thing that I seem to hear more and more often, as well as it relates to infrastructure and, and data infrastructure, is folks talking about the relationship between developers and security teams. There seems to be this trope that developers don't care about security, which I, I don't find to be true at all. And particularly folks who are building data-driven apps, it seems like that is even more top of mind for those people. Why historically do you think it's been challenging to get security teams and developers to work together? And, and how is that dynamic changing? So coming from Signal Sciences, I think this was Zane Lackey's beat the drum on this pretty hard. Like you have to be as a security person, you have to be approachable. Otherwise, your company is going to lose out in the long run. You can't be the department of no anymore. Um, and so, you know, I think it used to be where you'd have security team either work on a pen test or have some outsourced pen test company and provide a 300 page report of all the bugs to fix and give them to the developers, right? Like that doesn't work anymore in terms of preventing applications from going out, right? So I think it's changed from being able to honestly go back to data, right? So self-service data, can you give engineers instead of just noisy, like most engineers just didn't have access to security products before or the data from them. So they just had no idea. They were saying, look, I don't have to worry about security, secure coding practices because we have a security team for that, right? They're bolting on these all these products to make sure that whatever we build can't be can't be attacked. And I think now, you know, we know that's not true, right? You can't completely isolate, but actually having alerts, you know, log details, SIM dashboards, things that can are consumed by developers actually gets them way more interested, right? So in the application security world, it's 
hey, show me my part of the app that I developed, like how it's being attacked. And you could see that, right? Everyone had a like, view-only login to see logs and data and things like that. And same thing with what we're doing at Cyril is, is providing, <laughs> providing full logs and details of, hey, which service is causing this database slowdown, right? And that was just never possible before. And so they get excited that, and also like even just who is the user behind a service account, right? All these things that were hidden before, they're like, oh, that makes my job easier. I can go and troubleshoot more quickly. It doesn't even have to be a security incident, right? It's just a, it's just a performance issue that they want to address. So I think it's all around self-service data. You guys are obviously on the forefront of, of data security at, at Cyril. If you were able to say, wave a magic wand and make every enterprise just have a best-in-class data security strategy, what would that look like? What does a best-in-class data security strategy look like in 2021? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's, you know, as privacy as well dovetails into security too, which is, you know, how do I <laughs> how do I go from policies that I need to be in compliance with to enforcing those in my technology, in my stack. And that's really a huge disconnect. And I think, you know, there's a lot of frameworks out there that talk about, okay, you know, start with classification and discovery, which is definitely important. I think what we would say at Cyril is actually monitoring is more important as a first step, which is, you know, <laughs> the thing we saw all the time in the, in the AppSec space was like, oh, I bet, I bet the attackers are really after my payments application, right? So you deploy monitoring everywhere and you'd see actually they're not going after the payments app for some reason, right? They're going after this other corner of the app to try to, to make headway and break in, right? And I think that's the the similar case with, with data, which is just there's so much out there and there's not a clear view of what's going on. So actually by, you know, getting coverage over over every data request, you start to see patterns and you can actually then determine we want to focus on this sensitive data here. I think monitoring is really the key to all of that. And then you can kind of fit that in with, you know, classification and discovery tools and, and processes as well. But monitoring shows you just where you need to focus. I mean, I think as we think of all of the cloud native tools out there, you have to look at where where the gaps are for your organization. You know, I think what we see and what, what I got excited about in Cyril was that there the biggest hole seemed to be around all of these, you know, cloud databases, which are holding the business intelligence data, which are being accessed by all of the data scientists and data analysts across, you know, any company from 100 people to 10,000. And so I, I think it's, it's just got to be more about cross collaboration between departments in an organization of what is most important in terms of what are the biggest gaps. So mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just getting basic SIMs in place, right? Basic identity and access management in place. And then, you know, understanding who has access to which servers and things like that. Obviously, that's table stakes. So, you know, from a when you're looking, though, when you've done that and you're looking at the, the data itself and who has access to data, you know, that's where I think it all goes back to monitoring. Well, clearly the best is yet to come for you and for Cyril. I mean, if you and I were sitting down 10 years from now, what would make you look back and say, wow, you know, we, myself and the company, we, we really crushed it. It's a great opportunity to think about the future. I think what I'm really excited about is that we've gotten out of the gates a free trial just to really test out that bottoms up and tops down approach, right? I think we've seen a lot of companies 
go into the bottoms up to start and work a lot on developing a SNCC has done this super well, right? Like go from bottoms up and then focus on how do we get the larger deals out of that. Datadog did that later on. And so, you know, I think it's interesting to see if we can actually crush both ends of that at the same time, (laughs) you know, and I think there's, there's really not, it's challenging to find a product that doesn't have to be customized so much for those, you know, for those two use cases for, you know, the smaller, you know, just a handful of developers versus large enterprise. But I think this is another one that actually fits that. And so being able to empower developers, again, going back to data with real-time alerts and logs in terms of who's accessing data, and then obviously plug into the large, you know, zero trust for data or role-based access control, you know, those larger kind of strategic initiatives at the top and then drive that. So I think that's, I think we can do that. I think it's early signs <laughs> show, show that that's possible. Yeah, I think that would, that would be a good indication. Yeah. Well, it's awesome to see folks like yourself, like Sneak, leading the way in some of this product-led growth for security more broadly. I think it's an area that's traditionally found it pretty challenging to take the bottoms up motion in the same way that perhaps, you know, infrastructure or developer tools have been able to. But mm-hmm. it is really great to watch people like yourself push the envelope just because I think, especially as security individuals become increasingly strategic and important parts of an organization, building tools that really speak to the end user need is super important. And mm-hmm. it's amazing that you guys are, are recognizing that. Andrea, thank you so much for sharing your time and, and your wisdom with us. I know I, I could certainly talk about this stuff all day, and it's always great to connect with someone who feels the same. Before I let you go, we're wrapping up each episode this season with some fun rapid-fire questions so that listeners can get to know our guests a little bit more. You ready to try them out? Let's do it. All right, question one. What is the most important quality in a leader? Listening. Any advice for women beginning their careers? Ask a lot of questions and emulate the people who will answer them. And maybe I'll tack on a second. Pick something you're passionate about that you can acquire specialized knowledge. What's your morning routine? I do pour over coffee from my friend. He ships me coffee from LA called Latigo every month. And then I walk the dog and try to throw in the 30-minute hit workout. <laughs> nice. What is one thing you can't live without? Wine. And favorite city? Paris. Oh, I've got to agree. Paris, absolutely <laughs> one of my favorite cities. <laughs> like everywhere. <laughs> oh, amazing. Awesome. Andrea, thank you so much again for joining us at OV Build. It was awesome to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Thanks for listening to this episode of the OV Build podcast, Building to Boss. We hope you learned as much as we did. We'd love to hear what you think about the show please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to stay up to date with all the new episodes. If you're looking for more open view content, feel free to follow me, Caitlin Henry on LinkedIn. See you next time here on OV Build.